Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep, quiet stories and meditations to help you find a little peace at bedtime or anytime. Bodhi and I were out on the coast for a few days this week, visiting with Joe. One of my favorite things about working for myself is that I can pick up and go and work somewhere else. It was really beautiful to spend time in the redwood forests over there, just hiking along the flat trails next to the rivers that flow to the sea. I took some of that quiet time to meditate on my dreams for the coming year and started planning my schedule to make sure I can get everything done that I want to do so that I can make those dreams reality. The dead of winter always feels like such a good time for this sort of soul-searching and planning, and I'm really glad it's also when the new year starts. What are your dreams for the new year? Do you have a plan to reach them? I'd love to know. Feel free to let me know by direct messaging me on Instagram, or you can send me an email at eric at listentosleep.com. And on Instagram, you can find me at listen to sleep. Most of you know that Joe and Bodie and I live in Northern California, but you may not know that we're not from here. Well, Bodie is. He was born along with the rest of his feral litter in the forest about 20 miles east of here before Joe and I rescued him. But Joe and I are from the East Coast. He's from Buffalo, and I grew up in Rhode Island and lived and worked on the water there. One of my first jobs was on a lobster boat when I was in high school. This week, I found a great book about the history of the town across the bay from the town I lived in when I was in high school. As an extra added bonus, it includes some old Viking legends about their first landfall in the Americas, maybe somewhere around there, and a bit of history about one of the great leaders of the Wampanoag tribe. I want to thank Lindsay, Valene, Patrick, Rebecca, Cynthia, and Paula for supporting Listen to Sleep by subscribing to the ad-free version of the podcast this week. Your support is what allows me to be your bedtime storyteller and meditation guide. We have just about 600 supporters now. 595 to be exact, and I sure would appreciate it if you could help me reach my goal of 1,000 supporters by this summer. When you support the podcast for just $5 a month, you'll get every episode without any ads a day earlier, along with an extra subscriber-only episode every week. You can join on the website at listentosleep.com or by clicking the link in the show notes. This week's story is from a book called Tales of an Old Seaport, 
a general sketch of the history of Bristol, Rhode Island, including, incidentally, an account of the voyages of the Norsemen. That's actually not the entire title, but it sure is a mouthful. Let's take a deep breath. In. And out. Just letting go of the day and feeling the weight of gravity pulling you deep down into the mattress. Another deep breath in. And out. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. This is your time, quiet time. One more deep breath in with me. And out. If you get tired while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Just let yourself drift off. Tales of an Old Seaport Introduction Old Bristol From the earliest days of the Plymouth Colony, the name Mount Hope Lands has been applied to the peninsula in Narragansett Bay, of which Bristol, Rhode Island, is the chief town. The history of this town is more crowded with notable incident than that of any other in New England. First and most picturesque is the story of the Norsemen. Around Mount Hope, the legends of the Norsemen cluster, shadowy, vague, elusive, and yet altogether fascinating. Only legends they are and must remain. After the lapse of a thousand years of changing climates and of varying shores, no man can definitely locate the Vinland of the Vikings. Many have attempted to do so. And, like the late Professor E. N. Horsford, have established these theses to their own satisfaction and the satisfaction of the present dwellers in their Vinland but they have not succeeded in convincing anyone else. One of the latest writers, approaching the subject without local prejudice and judging of the past by the ever-changing present, will have it that the physical conditions of the lands around Narragansett Bay in the 11th century were such as to make it more than probable that the hop of the Norsemen is the Mount Hope 
of today. In his conclusions, all good Bristolians, yea, more, all good Rhode Islanders, cheerfully join. Scandinavian writers insist that the name Mount Hope is of Norse origin. They assert that it is only an English spelling of the indigenous name Montop or Monthop, and they are probably correct in their assertion. The indigenous had no written language, and our pilgrim ancestors spelled the indigenous words as they pleased, sometimes in half a dozen ways upon the same page. They go on to say that the termination hope was the name which Thorfinn and his companions gave to this region when they wintered here in 1008, and they bring forward the old Norse sagas to prove it. This is the story as the sagas tell it. In the year of our Lord, 1000, the Norsemen visited the shores of Vinland. They came from Greenland, a hundred years and more after their countrymen had discovered and colonized Iceland. Their ship was an open boat, from fifty to seventy-five feet long, similar to the one dug from the sands at Sandefjord, Norway, in 1880, which is preserved in the Museum of the University at Christiania. It was propelled by oars, and had a short mast amidships, on which was spread a small square sail. Both mast and sail were used only when the wind was fair. They came creeping along from headland to headland, seldom venturing out of sight of land in the unfamiliar seas. The mariner's compass was then unknown, except perhaps to the Chinese, and the art of propelling a boat against the wind by tacking had not been developed, unless possibly by those same Chinese. It would have been impossible to tack in one of the Viking ships. In the first place, the sail area was too small, and in the second place, the steering was all done from one side. A long steering oar was fastened upon a fulcrum about two feet long on the right side of the boat, the steerboard, starboard side. On one tack, the oar would have been useless because submerged. On the other, equally useless, because it could not go deep enough to grip the water. 
to men accustomed to the icy Arctic seas, voyages southward held out no terrors. They were only pleasant summer excursions. Thirty-five men made up the party, and their leader was Leif Erikson. His purpose was to explore the coasts which his countrymen, Bjarne Herjolfsson, had seen several years before, when, in attempting to cross from Iceland to Greenland, adverse winds had driven him to lands lying far to the south, possibly the island of Newfoundland. Leif was sailing in Bjarne's ship, which he had bought for the voyage. The first shores sighted they conjectured to be those which Bjarne had seen. They offered no attractions. The explorers called the country Heluland, the land of broad stones, and passed on to Markland, the land of woods, which may have been Nova Scotia. A few more days brought them to an island where they noticed a peculiar sweetness in the dew. They may have been the first off-islanders to land upon Nantucket, which is noted for its honeydew. Following the coast, they came to a place where a river flowed out of a lake. The region was inviting, but the tide was low, and the explorers were obliged to wait until high water before they could pass over the broad shallows into the lake beyond. Here they disembarked and erected temporary habitations, which soon gave place to permanent dwellings when they determined to winter at that place. The new houses were easily constructed from the stones which abundantly covered the fields, as they do even to this day. The place seemed a paradise to the hardy voyagers. Fish of many kinds leaped from the waters of the rivers and bay. Salmon, larger than any they had before seen, were especially abundant. Many wild animals roamed through the forests, as deer wander through the woods and pastures of Rhode Island at the present time. The denizens of the frigid zone rightly imagined that cattle might easily find provender throughout the winter in a climate so soft and mild they experienced no severe cold. No snow fell, and the grass did not wither much. They had chanced upon one of the mild winters with which we are occasionally favored. Three or four times in the last thirty years, 
the Mount Hope lands have known seasons when there were but few snowstorms, and those slight. Seasons when in the sheltered nooks of the forest the grass did not wither much. The next party encountered real New England weather, and doubtless objurgated Leif's party for romancing concerning the climate. The equality in length of days was greater than in Iceland or Greenland. On the shortest day, the sun remained above the horizon from 7.30 to 4.30. The dwellings having been completed, Leif divided his men into two parties in order to explore the country. One party was to remain at home, while the other went abroad, and the exploring party was to always return at nightfall. Special charge was given to the men to keep together. The fear of the unknown was a marked characteristic of the Dark Ages, even among the Norsemen, who dreaded no human foes. One of the party was a German, Tierker by name, a kind of foster father of Leif. He was missing one night when the explorers came home, and Leif at once started in search of him with a party of twelve men. They were soon met by Tierker, whom they welcomed with great joy. But the man acted most strangely. At first, he spoke only in German, his mother tongue, and rolled his eyes and made strange facial contortions when they did not understand what he said. After a time, the Norse language came back to him, and he explained his queer behavior he had chanced upon some wild grapes, and the memories his discovery brought back were too much for him. Whether he had found some of the fox grapes, which are still so common in New England, or whether, as Professor Fernald conjectures, the fruit was either a wild currant or a rock cranberry, we cannot know. But the adventurers were immensely pleased at his discovery. They filled the longboat, which was carried with them as a tender, with the dried fruit, when in the early spring they returned to Bratalid, their home port. Because of the grapes, the name Vinland was given to the region. The return of Leif and the account his sailors gave naturally caused intense excitement in that quiet community. In the spring of 1002, 
Thorvald Ericsson, taking his brother's ship and possibly some of Leif's crew as guides, sailed on another voyage to Vinland. His object was to make a more thorough exploration of the country. Thirty men made up Thorvald's party. Nothing is told of their voyage until they reached Leif's booths in Vinland. There they laid up their ship and remained quietly through the winter, living by hunting and fishing. The next year was spent in exploring the lands to the south. The second summer, they turned their steps northward, and in this northern expedition, Thorvald was killed in a battle with the indigenous people. His comrades buried him on the headland where he had proposed to settle. There you shall bury me, he told them, after he had received his death wound. And place a cross at my head, and another at my feet, and the place shall be called Crossness ever after. The winter of 1004 to 1005 was passed in Leif's booths, gathering cargo for the return voyage. In the spring, they sailed back to Greenland, carrying large quantities of grapes, as their companions had done. Because of Thorvald's death, the accounts of his voyage are probably more meager than they otherwise would have been. In 1007, the most important of the Norse expeditions sailed from Greenland. Its leader was Thorfinn Karlsefni. Thorfinn was both a seaman and a merchant. Sailing from Iceland to Greenland on a trading voyage, he had wintered at Bratalid, and there married his wife, Gudrid. Naturally, there had been much talk of Vinland the Good during the long Arctic winter, and in the spring, an expedition to explore the new country was fitted out. It consisted of three ships, manned by 160 men. With it went Gudrid and six other women, for it was proposed to colonize the land. Thorfinn spent the winter amid great hardships, caused by cold and lack of food, on what may have been one of the islands of Buzzard's Bay. There, his son Snorri was born, as far as we know, the first child of European parents born upon the shores of the American continent. In the spring, 
coming at last to the place where a river flowed down from the land into a lake and then into the sea. They waited for the high tide, as Leif had done, sailed into the mouth of the river and called the place Hope. On the lowlands about them were self-sown fields of grain. On the high ground, the wild grapes grew in great profusion. Deer and other wild animals roamed through the forests. The brooks, as well as the bay, were filled with fish. They dug pits upon the beach before the high tide came, and when the tide fell, the pits were leaping with fish. Just so today, flounders may be caught along the Narragansett shores. The booths that Leif's party had put up could not accommodate the newcomers, and additional houses were built inland above the lake. No snow fell during the winter. The cattle they had brought with them needed no protection and lived by grazing. None of the privations of the previous winter were experienced, and all things went well until the Skrellings, or indigenous people, appeared. At first, the Skrellings came only for trading. They wished to exchange skins for goods, being especially eager to obtain little strips of scarlet cloth and willingly giving a whole skin for a small strip. The Norsemen benevolently attempted to satisfy the desires of all by tearing the cloth into smaller and yet smaller pieces as the supply diminished. While the bartering was going on, one of the bulls Thorfinn had brought with him appeared upon the scene, bellowing loudly. Thereupon, the indigenous people rushed to their canoes and paddled away as quickly as possible. A month later, they reappeared, this time not to barter, but to fight. In the combat that followed, two Northmen fell, and many of the Skrellings were killed. This battle convinced Thorfinn that the lands, though excellent in quality, would be undesirable for a colony by reason of the hostility of the indigenous people. He therefore turned his keels northward and returned to Greenland in 1010. From this time, expeditions to Vinland to procure grapes and timber became frequent. Because they had lost their novelty, they ceased to be chronicled. As the saga puts it, they were esteemed both lucrative and honorable. Other mention of Vinland is found apart from the Icelandic chronicles. 
Adam of Bremen, in his Historia Ecclesiastica, published in 1073, describes Iceland and Greenland, and then goes on to say that there is another country, far out in the ocean, which has been visited by many persons, and which is called Vinland, because of the grapes found there. In Vinland, he says, corn grows without cultivation, as he learns from trustworthy Norse sources. This must, of course, have been the indigenous corn, a grain that is hardly possible of cultivation in Europe north of the Alps. The people of Iceland were more given to the writing of chronicles than were those of the countries of Europe. But unhappily, Iceland was a land of volcanoes, and eruptions were not infrequent. An eruption of Mount Hecla in 1390 buried several of the neighboring estates beneath its ashes. Perhaps under those ashes may be lying other sagas that may, at some time, be brought again to light, as in the case of the scrolls of Pompeii. Mention of the lands that Leif discovered is found in the Annals of Iceland as late as 1347. The last bishop of Greenland was appointed in the first decade of the 15th century, and since that time, the colony has never been heard of. Ruins of its houses may still be seen, but of the fate of those who dwelt in them, we know nothing. One witness there still may be to testify to the Norse visits. About 35 years ago, a rock known by tradition but lost sight of for half a century was rediscovered on the shores of Mount Hope Bay. Upon it is rudely carved the figure of a boat with what may have been a runic inscription beneath it. The writing was surely not graven by English hands, and the indigenous people had no written language. May not the strange carving have been made by the axe of a Norseman? It is not remarkable that the rock was lost sight of for so many years. The inscription is inconspicuous, and the rock is like hundreds of others along the shore. Moreover, it was sometimes covered by the high tides of spring and fall. It has recently been removed to a more conspicuous position and may ere long be protected by a fence from the vandalism of the occasional tourist. Fact, and not fancy, characterizes the indigenous history of the Mount Hope lands. First upon the scene steps Massasoit, ruler 
of all the region where the pilgrims of the Mayflower landed upon the shores of Plymouth. Like all the indigenous Sachems, Massasoit had many places of residence. He moved from one to another, as the great barons of the Middle Ages moved from one castle to another, and for the same reason. When provisions became scarce in one place, a region where they were more plentiful was sought. One of his villages was unquestionably upon the slope of Mount Hope. Not many weeks after the landing of the pilgrims, Massasoit had paid them a visit in their new settlement. In July, 1621, Edward Winslow and Stephen Hopkins were sent by Governor Bradford to return the visit. Of what happened to this embassy and to a second sent some two years later, Winslow presented a very full account, which may be read in very nearly all of the histories of the period. It is one of the most trustworthy and valuable pictures of the indigenous royal state that have come down to us from colonial days. Winslow found Massasoit occupying a wigwam only a little larger than those of his subjects. The sleeping place was a low platform of boards covered with a thin mat. On this bed, says Winslow, Massasoit placed his visitors, with himself and his wife at one end and the Englishman at the other and two more of Massasoit's men passed by and upon them, so that they were worse weary of the lodging than of the journey. As the Sachem had not been apprised of Winslow's projected visit, he had made no provisions for his entertainment. No supper whatsoever was secured that night and not until one o'clock the next afternoon was food to be had. Then two large fish, which had just been shot with arrows, of course, were boiled and placed before the Sachem's guest, now numbering forty or more besides the two Englishmen. In 1623, tidings reached Plymouth that Massasoit was sick and likely to die. Edward Winslow was therefore sent to visit him a second time. With him went a young English gentleman who was wintering at Plymouth and who desired much to see the country. His name was John Hampton, a name destined to become famous wherever the English language was spoken. John Hampton was born in 1594. He would have been 29 years old at this time. He had as yet done nothing whatever to make himself famous and was a comparatively inconspicuous man, 
notwithstanding the prominent position his family had held for centuries in England. There is no record of his presence in England at this time. Like Oliver Cromwell, he may have been considering a residence in America among men of his own religious faith, and for this reason may have made a preliminary visit to this country. Green, discussing in his History of the English People, Cromwell's scheme for emigrating to America, says, It is more certain that John Hampton purchased a tract of land on the Narragansett. Most important of all, the name of John Hampton appears in the list of the charter members of the colony of Connecticut. As long as he lived, Massasoit remained the firm friend of the colonists. Upon his death in 1662, his son Wamsutta, or Alexander, headed the Wampanoag tribe for a year, and then came Philip, Massasoit's second son. Philip was a foe of the settlers, made such by English treatment of his tribe. He was one of the ablest leaders this country has produced, a wonderful organizer, a skilled diplomatist. From tribe to tribe he journeyed, inducing them to rest from their interminable wars and to turn their weapons against the common enemy of all. But for an accident which caused hostilities to begin a little while before the year Philip had fixed upon, the columnists would have been swept from the land. The war began in 1675, and Captain Benjamin Church, the conqueror of Philip, wrote an account of it. When Philip's plans had all come to naught, the Wampanoag Sachem came back to Mount Hope to make his last stand and to die. Death came to him from a bullet fired by one of his own men who had taken service in Captain Church's company. In 1876, on the 200th anniversary of his death, the Rhode Island Historical Society with appropriate ceremonies, placed a boulder monument on the top of Mount Hope with this inscription. King Philip, August 12th, 1676, O.S. Beside Cold Spring, on the west side of the hill, a massive block of granite records that in the miry swamp, 166 feet west-southwest from this spring, according to tradition, King Philip fell on August 12, 1676. Good night.